No matter how hard they wanted children or how much they tried, they could never have them. And that's why God chose them. He chose them so that there would be no question that God was the one who was blessing them with children and children's children all through the centuries. God was the one who was fulfilling his promises. As Kenneth Matthews puts it, Abram's industry could have obtained for himself a land, wealth, and fame, but in the acquisition of children by Sarai, he was helpless without God. Now this promise of a son, this promise of offspring, really lies at the center of Abraham's entire story. As we're gonna see as we walk through the chapters in Genesis, it's all about Abram's and and Sarah's struggles with will God keep this promise? And how will he keep this promise? Sometimes they'll believe it and other times they'll doubt it, but this promise lies at the center of the story because all of God's other promises depend on it. The only way that Abraham could have a great name, become a great nation, become a great blessing to the nations was by having children. Now the last question our text poses to us is this. How will Abraham respond to these great promises? Will he go as the Lord commanded? Will he believe God's promises or will he doubt? And as we will see, there's gonna be a little bit of both and there's gonna be a lot more of the doubting than the believing. This leads to our final point, the breakdown. Abraham's response, or Abram's response at this point, begins on a good note in verse four. It tells us that Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. He was already 75 years old at this time. You know, we need to remember that people lived a lot longer at that time, so he's more middle-aged than senior at this time. He left his country, his kindred, and his father's house, along with Sarai, his nephew Lot, and their servants, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, when they come to Canaan, verse six says that he went to Shechem, to the Oak of Morah, which literally means Oak of Teaching. This is the name of this location in the land of Canaan. And it had this name likely because this was the religious site of the native Canaanites, a place where they received what they thought were divine oracles. But rather than encounter the false gods of these foreign people, Abram actually meets with the Lord. And that was the Lord's way of telling Abram that he didn't need any other gods but him. And there at the Oak of Morah, at this tree of teaching, verse seven says that the Lord appears to Abram and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So this was it. This was where God's promises would one day be fulfilled. This land would be his. It would belong to the offspring that came after him. Abraham would have his children here and his children would inhabit this land as God gradually made them into a great nation. Abram's response to this is commendable. As God makes this promise, he doesn't cower in fear, looking at the numerous Canaanites who are living in the land or doubt how his little family and his barren wife could one day become a great nation and this land would belong to them. He doesn't doubt at this point. Instead, he responds with worship. Verse seven says that he built an altar to the Lord where he would have offered sacrifices. Then in verse eight, he travels around Canaan. He arrives at Bethel. He's traveling around the land and he's he's looking at it through the eyes of faith. He's believing God's promises and he's building another altar here and he's offering worship to God, believing God's promise that all of this will one day belong to him and his descendants. But then verse 10 hits. Verse 10 tells us that there was a famine in the land. Now this was problematic. You know, this land that's supposed to sustain a great nation one day that comes from Abraham and Sarah, 
is now barren. The land itself is barren. How can a land like that sustain a great nation? How can God fulfill his promises with what seems like damaged goods? Well, if Abram had clung to God's promise, then the obvious answer would have been, oh, I I believe, I believe God's promise. This is just a season in the land. It's a test of my faith, but God's gonna fulfill his promises despite what I see. But that's not how Abram responds. He responds instead with doubt. And so rather than stay in the land or inquire of the Lord, like he did in verse eight, seeking the Lord's guidance, He just decides to take things into his own hands. Verse 10 tells us also that Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now the word sojourn here means to settle. I mean, it's not his homeland, um, but he's moving there like an immigrant would move and settle in a foreign land. He's making Egypt his long-term home. And so what we see here is Abram, he's starting to lose his faith in God's promise to give him the land of Canaan. But then it gets worse. Verse 11 says that when he's about to enter Egypt, he makes a plan to use his wife in order to save his own skin. The problem, as he sees it, is his wife is beautiful. And he's afraid of what this might mean for him. The Egyptians might kill him to get to her. And so he asks his wife to lie by telling the Egyptians that she was only his sister, not his wife, so that rather than kill him, they treat him well instead. As we find out later, this was actually partially true. Sarai was his half-sister. But as J.I. Packer puts it, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. That was certainly the case here. Yes, she was his sister, but no, she was not only his sister, she was also his wife. So we need to think about the implications of Abram's decision here. If Sarai was telling all the Egyptians that she was a free agent and she's beautiful and people are noticing her, what's bound to happen? Well, someone's going to marry her. And then what would happen then? What would happen to Abram? What would happen to God's promises? There would be no way for him to have children, which would make the fulfillment of God's promises impossible. In other words, at this point in history, right at the beginning of Abram's journey in following the Lord by faith, the promises of God are being threatened. Abram here, full of fear and selfishness, is willing to sacrifice not only his wife, but God's promises in order to save his own skin. This man is no hero. He's a selfish coward. He's a man driven by the need to watch out for himself above his wife and above the promises of God. Now things end up unfolding exactly as Abraham foresaw in verses 14 to 16. As he enters Egypt, the locals can't help but admire his wife's beauty. They're so stunned by her that word spreads to Pharaoh and he's like, I need to marry her too. And so he snatches her up, brings her into his harem of wives and claims her for himself. And then he turns to Abram, the alleged brother of this beautiful woman, and pays him a handsome dowry of sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, and camels. Now God's plans at this point seem to be falling apart because of Abram's selfishness. The mother of the great nation was now in the custody of the most powerful man on the earth at the time. So how would God fulfill his promises? How is this all going to work out? 
Well, something happens that Abram didn't foresee. God intervenes. Verse 17 says that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And somehow, whether through divine revelation or through Sarai herself spilling the the, the truth, Pharaoh learns that she is Abram's wife. And so he confronts Abram in verse 18 with a series of accusatory questions. What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? It's all Pharaoh's words, and Abram, in response, has nothing to say because he's guilty as charged. He who was supposed to be a blessing to the nations had become a curse because of his cowardice. But rather than kill him or punish him or take away uh, the dowry that he had paid, Pharaoh simply returns Sarai to him and tells him to leave Egypt. And just like that, God's promises are back on track. Not only that, but God's promises are actually being fulfilled. God promised to bless him. And what happens? Well, Abram leaves Egypt with a multitude of animals and servants. God promised to curse those who dishonor him. And what happens? Well, he afflicts Pharaoh and his house with plagues. In other words, God would not only fulfill his promises through Abram, he would fulfill his promises despite him. As Gordon Wenham put it, Abram's failure in the face of hostility is an illustration of the invincibility of the divine promises. Now that is a great term there. The invincibility of the divine promises. God's promises are invincible. Which is why they not only survive Abram's failures in Egypt, but they would survive all the countless other sins, failures, and mistakes that Abraham's descendants would make through the centuries. God's promises would remain invincible until centuries later when they were finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. It's on the cross where God finally fulfills his promises to Abram. God promised to give Abram a great name and how much greater a name can one have when they are the ancestor of the chosen one, the Messiah. On the cross, God's promise to bless the families of the earth through Abram's descendants would finally be fulfilled as Jesus' death made it possible for people from every nation to be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. And on the cross, God's promise to make Abram a, a great nation would finally be fulfilled as God would create a new people for himself, not bound by language or land, but through faith in Christ. God keeps his promises. Nothing can shake them. Nothing can change them. Not the passage of time and not the failures of man. God's promise to once again pour out his blessings upon the earth is an invincible promise that would find its fulfillment in Christ. So what do we take away from this text? Well, let me just suggest two things. First, we must find comfort in knowing that since the beginning of God's redemptive plans, he never chose the strong things of the world to accomplish his purposes. He chose the weak. That was the case with Abram, and that is the case with us. Like us, Abram was a weak man. He started strong. He started with zeal and excitement and faith, looking at the promises of God and believing them, but then he floundered because his circumstances changed his view. It 
decalibrated his lenses of seeing how he saw God's promises and he failed. And yet God didn't fail him. God never abandoned him. He kept him in his mighty hand and fulfilled his promises to show that he would be the one to accomplish his purposes and not man. I know that many of you, like myself, we feel weak. We feel unworthy of God's grace. We feel disqualified to be used by God to do anything of significance. And you know what? That's true. If God's grace depended on our strength, none of us would qualify because we are all sinners and we are all weak. We're selfish and we're cowards. But those are exactly the kinds of people God uses to fulfill his plans. Remember this, whenever you're tempted to think that God could never use you or that God could never love you. God loved Abram with a steadfast love and mercy. A love that didn't abandon him when he failed. And if you have put your trust in Christ, that same love rests on you as well. Not because you deserve it, but because of his sovereign choice. Second and lastly, let us remember that God has blessed us in order to be a blessing to others. We're not meant to be reservoirs of God's blessing, hoarding everything that God could give us for ourselves. We're meant to be channels of God's blessing, blessing others with the blessing that we have received. God hasn't chosen us so that we can gather in holy huddles. He has chosen us to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's why he called Abram, and that's why he called us God's desire is to bless the world. And the only way that's going to be done is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The blessings of God are found in Christ and Christ alone. So we must bring Christ to bring God's blessings to others. To those around us, to our neighbors, to the nations. We must bring Christ to the world. So that God's judgments will be lifted. And God's blessings poured out. Let's pray. Father, today as we look at the life of Abram, we humble ourselves, seeing ourselves in his life, in his failures, in his doubting. And we rejoice that your covenant, your promises do not depend on our faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of your own word. I pray, Father, that you would delight yourself to use weak vessels like us to glorify your holy name that your blessings may pour out throughout the world to all the families of the earth, for you deserve worship from people all over the world. We commit ourselves to you, Father. Work in our lives, make us people of faith, and when we fail, may we be forgiven and changed to become people of faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.